Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you will join me in Psalm 70, in your copy of God's Word. And if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. It feels like we're back. This is amazing. Just hearing you sing this morning and we made... I. Like, I don't want to say this prematurely, but I think we've made it through. You know, God is good. And so, yeah, so let me open up with something that, it's hard to say goodbye to Isaiah. We were talking last night about this as a family. We were talking about what it would be like in heaven, and we were having dinner together, me, Mitch, and Katie, the three of us, and we went out to eat, and, and Mitch asked this really profound question about heaven, will there be boneless wings <laughs> in heaven? And I said, well, it, of course. And, you know, and, but they're def- if that's true, then there's going to be traditional with the bone wings as well. There have to be. And, and to anybody who's vegan, my apologies uh, to you, but maybe there'll be vegan boneless wings in heaven. I don't know. So, um, but I just, like, I think that's going to be a beautiful moment. So it's hard to say goodbye to Isaiah and what heaven's going to be like, uh, but we are out of Isaiah and now into the Psalms for the summer. We love coming back to the Psalms together, studying the Psalms. We were in the 60s last year. That was a good era. We'll be in the 70s this summer. The 70s was a good time too, right? You want to go back to the 70s? The disco ball? And so here we are in the 70s. We're going to do 70, 71, 72. You can read ahead. Someone was telling me in the first service, hey, I'm looking forward to the Psalms. I read 70 today in preparation. I would encourage you to do that. Read next week in preparation, 71 and 72 and following, and just start to really get the rhythm of of the Psalms. That's what we're going to do for the next several weeks this summer. We love coming back to the Psalms. Uh, Let me start with a confession today. And this is, um, this is a serious confession. It's going to sound humorous, but it's actually serious. Um, so I love the game of golf. Probably too much, right? We all have these inordinate loves. And I, I love the game of golf. And so every once in a while I realize I just need to put my clubs away for a season. And so I put my clubs away for about a year and then COVID hit. 
So I haven't picked up a club to play a round of golf in two years. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to get my sticks out. I'm going to go dust off my clubs and see what happens. So I went down, pulled them out of the shop, pulled a bunch of cobwebs off of them, went out there. And at the, at the driving range, I stepped up and hit the most amazing first shot of my life. True or false? False. No, in fact, because wisdom has gotten the better of me on golf, I, I, you know, I said, you know what? You just need to spend about a half an hour before you even take your first shot and I went back in my mind to 17 years ago to the most formative, formative lesson I ever had, and I started going through the checklist, which is what coaches will teach you to do, and I started with grip. Everything starts with the grip, alignment, addressing the ball, target, posture, and I'm going through this checklist of like seven things. I'm stretching, I'm warming up. I'm, what am I doing? I'm going back to the fundamentals of the game. Before I even swing and take the first shot, I'm hearing every coach who's ever been worth his or her while in the history of the world say these words, fundamentals, fundamentals. We are gonna win by playing the fundamentals of this game, right? Whether it's soccer, tennis, basketball, football, you name the sport, or the discipline, music, guitar, trumpet, drums, you know, every Sunday morning, you don't know this happens, but every Sunday morning, early on, Ralph comes in here and he just starts on the fundamentals by himself. He's all by himself. What are you doing? You know how to do that. No. He's, so this is what I'm saying. The disciplines of the fundamentals are so critical for us to come back to. Oh, the same thing is true in the game of life. And it's even more true in the Christian life. Like, if you put your Christianity away for two years, or two months, or two weeks, you take two weeks off of your, the foundational disciplines of the Christian life, your spiritual health will reflect it. People around you will see that you have had a sharp decline in your gospel health. So Christianity must be practiced daily. If we read and learn anything in the New Testament from Jesus, it is that Christianity is something you do every day, walking and talking and living the gospel. It must be practiced all the time. And that's why we love coming back to the Psalms. We love coming back to the Psalms because... All of the basic disciplines and habits and fundamentals of the game are in the Psalms. The Word of God and longing for it. Prayer, giving, service, mission. Over and over again, the Psalms school us. You can just hear the Psalms saying to you over and over again. If you read and pray the Psalms week in and week out, here's what you'll hear. Fundamentals. Fundamentals. Get back to the fundamentals of the game. And that's why we love the Psalms. So, to kick off our summer in the Psalms, we begin with other than Scripture intake, the most important spiritual discipline you could ever practice, which is learning how to pray. Learning how to pray. Learning to say with the disciples who said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. 
So I want to give you four things that I think come really naturally out of this psalm that teach us how to pray. Pray with urgency, pray for justice, pray God's greatness, and then pray in humility. I will say this to you without giving you all the details. Um, something happened in my circumstances this past week in my life, very personal thing, and I needed Psalm 70. Like, it was a particular grace to me. God saying to me in the midst of circumstances that I would not have invited into my own life, God saying to me, I want you to find me in this word. So I hope the same renewal and grace and freedom that I discovered this week unintentionally, just trying to mind my business and prepare a sermon, will come to you and that you'll experience that as well. Let me walk you through these four things. Number one, learn to pray with urgency. Learn to pray with urgency. Look at verse one and let's read this slowly together. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Pray with urgency. Where is the first place that you go to with your problems, with your anxiety, with your relational conflict, or just the stress of life? Like, where's the first place? Because I think if you're like me, the first thing you automatically want to do is complain to someone or text someone or call someone or ask someone else for help. And when you do that, you bypass the, the, the person who can help you the most when you do that, when you don't go to him with urgency first. In the habit of prayer, I discover to go to God first. It is so tempting to go elsewhere. It's so tempting to take my urgency to vent or complain or get on that hamster wheel of worry and just spin, 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 or even or just take matters into my own hands. I'm going to go fix this and bypass the most capable, powerful, peace-giving resource that exists, God himself. David's teaching us to do something else. So here's what I want you to hear. David's teaching us to do something else with your urgency. You got this urgency and, and, you, and you feel like you need to do something with it. You should. You absolutely should do something with that. Oh God, deliver me. Make haste. Act, Lord. In prayer, I discover the freedom to take my most urgent, heavy burden and roll it on Christ. Give it to God. This is more than let go and let God. I, I want you to hear that this morning. This is more than let go and let God. This is entrust to God that very thing that is producing such in fact, let me give it to you this way. In Luke chapter 11, I'll read it to you. Jesus said this. There's even, a, there's even a place for audacity in prayer. Listen to this, Luke chapter 11. Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because another friend of mine on a journey in, has come into town and, and 
he's staying with me and I don't have anything, we're out of bread, I don't have anything to set before him. And then suppose that the, the, the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door's already locked, my children are in bed, I, I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus goes on, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of your friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, because of your impudence, because of your persistence, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And then Jesus goes on to say, ask, seek, knock. Jesus is teaching us that in the middle of the night, the first place we should go is to say, God, I can't can't go anywhere else. I want to knock and ask and ask you to act on my behalf. I'm tired of going everywhere else. I want to ask you to act in my life. Do you pray with audacity and urgency? Because, you know, I think sometimes we're just not taking it very seriously. We are taking everything into our own hands so quickly and into our own hearts to worry and fret and be burdened by. Number one, pray with urgency. Number two, pray for justice. Now, I'm going to read verses two and three, and I want you to watch for what David does not say. Watch this. Psalm 70, verse two. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame, those who say, aha, aha. Notice what he does not pray. You see it? He does not say, Lord, help me to put them to shame. He does not say, Lord, I will, I'm the king. Use my righteous indignation. I will turn them back. No, David knows his own heart better than that. Yes, there's a righteous indignation in there, but he also knows that remaining sin lives in his heart and that his righteous indignation is never perfectly pure. It's often mingled with hypocrisy. So his prayer is for a more objective form of justice, and he can only trust God to do that. Will you turn them back? Look, his language is decidedly transferring judgment and vengeance from his own heart to God. God, will you turn them back? God, will you put them to shame? God, will you vindicate your people? David is learning not to shame others, but to entrust to a perfectly capable God the act of dishonoring anyone. In other words... David prays for his enemies, just like Jesus said. Pray for your enemies. Van Gemeren, in his excellent commentary on the Psalms, says this. He says, the psalmist David here prays for his enemies' fall, yes, but he does so in accordance with God's principles of justice. As long as the kingdom of God is suffering persecution and harassment, we should pray for God's kingdom to come which includes sometimes asking the Lord to vindicate his people and avenge his enemies. But how you do that makes all the difference. And that kind of comes out in verse three very palpably. Look at verse three and look at the aha, aha. Like like there's some people who are like, aha, 
we got you, right? And what David's talking about in this psalm is that spirit of retaliation that you have inside of you that wants to get back at the person who got you. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a primal instinct in everyone on this side of the garden that says, I will, like, I want to get back at somebody who got me. And what is David's response to those who want to shame him? To those who want to take cheap shots on Twitter, what is his response? To those who want to mock you or God's people, David does not yield to this primal instinct of retaliation. So instead of, so when somebody cuts you off in traffic, I don't know about you, but I, like, I'm just, I'm total, true confessions this morning. Like I've thought before, please do not fire me as a pastor. I've thought before, I got cut off, and I've thought before, I'm just going to give him a little tap. <laughs> Don't act like you never thought that. Don't tell me you never thought that. I know you thought that. I know some of you dudes in here. I know some of you ladies. What? Where did that come from? Where's that spirit of retaliation come from? This is why Jesus said, you need to turn the other cheek. Somebody strikes you, you turn the other cheek. Somebody strikes your family, that's a different story. But if somebody strikes you, you turn the other cheek. Why? Because Jesus is raising up mealy mouth, weak men who don't know how to respond, and you know, just, just, just everybody just love everybody. No, because you will never activate the gospel in your soul and be the stronger man if you can't turn your other cheek on the first punch. Jesus is saying you should turn the other cheek and find out what this fight's all about. The gospel alone has the power, listen to this, the gospel alone has the power to neutralize that spirit of retaliation inside of you and, and replace it with blessing and kindness it's not just one of those two things, it's both of those things. Something needs to neutralize your spirit of retaliation and then fill you with blessing. That's why Romans chapter 12, Paul can say in following the teaching of Jesus, bless those who bless you. And, and don't, don't seek to repay evil for evil. If possible, far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals of fire on his head. That metaphor has always struck me. What is he talking about? If you're kind and you overcome evil with good, why are you heaping fire on top of their head, coals of fire on top of their head? It's an analogy designed to say you're transferring the judgment out of your hands and into God's hands. So you're actually in blessing someone who's cursing you, taking that burning judgment and saying, I, I don't have to execute that judgment on you. I'm going to put it I'm going to put it over here. God, you do that. You can't do that without the gospel. You can't do that without grace. You can't do that unless you understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said to God the Father, in your place and in my place, I'll take the burning coals of judgment on my head for them. Now when that happens, 
you can do this whole retaliation thing very differently. Because Jesus, and this is a recurring refrain in the apostles and in the gospels, Jesus did not answer though he was reviled. He did not revile in return. He became the curse that he might bless and give life. We should pray for justice. Third, pray God's greatness. And this is like this lesson alone, this third idea is worth the psalm if you got nothing else. Number three, let's try it again. Number three, pray for, there we go. Pray for greatness. Pray God's character. Um, you want, like, I hope you think this. If not, trust me on this. You want the character of God to inform your life. You and I need and want the, Im the one who made us in his image. We want his character to transform our lives. So we pray his character. Pray his greatness. Pray God's greatness. One of the most important lessons you'll ever learn about prayer is to learn to pray God's character. That's what this psalm is teaching us. Verse four, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say God is great. He's, he's teaching us something. David is modeling for us something. May all who seek you delight in you, be glad in you, and say God is great. Now, I think when the Bible uses the language of greatness, it does so in two ways. It speaks of God's qualitative, qualitative greatness, like His beauty, His holiness, His perfections, all the perfections of God. He's qualitatively greater than any other thing. He is of a complete different kind. He's so perfect and holy and beautiful and loving. The Bible also uses the word great to describe his bigness and immensity and vastness and transcendence. And often the psalmist will use the language of greatness to convey both of those at the same time. That's what's happening here. God is great in every way. And David's thinking about his character. He's thinking about his power. He's thinking about his immensity. And as he does that, look at what happens to his problem. His really big problem starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as God gets bigger and more qualitatively great and amazing. David's teaching us how to pray. The hard circumstances of life will move you to seek the Lord, and that's a good thing. But even before our circumstances change, and if they never change, you can still say and believe in God's greatness. I believe God is great. You can say that before your circumstances change. This is not the same thing as, as sort of pronouncing its greatness, like, you know, in the prosperity gospel movement, that formula is exercised. That's not what we're talking about. This song models for us that in prayer we discover a joy that transcends our circumstances. We discover a beauty and a greatness uh, of that we discover the character of God. In this psalm, we discover that through prayer, God is enough. 
God is enough. Whatever else is happening in my life, like God is enough for me. Elizabeth Elliot said this, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Think about that. That's, that's so insightful. Let me say it again. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Lord, I can't wait till this season is over. Lord, I can't wait till you show justice here. Lord, I can't wait till this is done. Lord, I can't wait till we get to this place. Surely this will not go on forever. No, it won't. But you can still meet Christ in the middle of the most difficult, challenging, life-exhausting circumstances. God is enough. You need to believe that today. I want to encourage you, like this is what I get to tell you today, and I'm so glad I get to say this to you. God is enough for you when nothing else is. Take your biggest trouble, take your biggest problem right now, relational conflict, grief of loss of a loved one, financial broken, whatever your situation is. Take your biggest problem right now and set it underneath this beautiful warming heat of the glory and greatness of God and watch it just start to soften everything and diffuse and dissolve and heal and give hope. God's greatness is not just a theological construct. God's greatness is designed to fill your soul with hope. Here's a fourth thing. Pray in humility. The psalm ends, I am poor and needy, hasten to me, O God. And this is interesting. This is really interesting. I see that coming with David here. But what I think is happening is that David is, is wanting to voice, I do not presume on our relationship, God. I'm not presuming on our covenant relationship. You know, we often presume on relationship and assume that another person should act in a certain way toward us. David says, maybe I've done that before. I'm not doing that right now. I'm going to start with not presuming on you just because we're in covenant relationship with God, either in David's case nationally, as a king, as a representative and leader of his nation, as a, as a personal, as a, a man who walks with God, a man after God's own heart. I'm not presuming on our relationship, God. I want you to know, I believe, I confess, I will say out loud, I will write a song that says, I am poor and needy. I can't live without you. I am poor and helpless and in need. Hasten to me, O oh God. Do for me for what I can't do for myself. So prayer then, mark this down, prayer is by definition an act of humility. When you pray, you are acting you're humbling yourself. The very idea that you'd be willing to pray and ask someone outside of you for help, someone bigger than you, stronger than you, more trustworthy than you, is an act of humility. 
So prayer, by definition, is an act of humility. The opposite is also true. Not praying consistently reveals pride and self-confidence that is completely unwarranted because you and I are not in control. We think we are. You go, you, when you go days or weeks or months without sincere, authentic prayer and humility before God, you are saying, listen, when you go weeks and weeks without praying, you are saying to God, I don't need you. Now think about that. That just can't be true. You don't want that to be true of your life. When you offer authentic prayer before God in a posture of humility, like when you, when you raise your hands, and you should pray this way when you're by yourself or when you're with others, however, whatever you're comfortable with, but when you pray this way in praise and worship or when you open your hands in surrender, these are the postures of prayer. Open hands, see that in the Bible. Raised hands, open hands. Head bowed, when you bow your head. When you kneel, when you kneel and, 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 you, and you say, I'm gonna humble myself physically before the Lord, and you bow down and you maybe even pray further, closer to the ground. Or when you just, just decide, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay myself out before the Lord. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you humble yourself before God in prayer, when you physically and mentally and spiritually humble yourself, you are saying to God, I'm poor and needy. I need help. Like you're saying with David, hasten to me, God. I'm tired of trying to fix this. I can't. I think we've kind of, it's not that we're not talking about prayer and praying, and, and like, but at some point we've got to get beyond the sick list. Will you pray for so-and-so and pray for so-and-so and pray? And we've, we've got to get beyond the sick list to this kind of, to voicing this kind of prayer. Oh God, I am broken, poor, needy. I hunger and thirst for a righteousness that I don't have. Uh, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Like, I long for this. Pray in humility. Pray beyond the list of things that you think need to change in your life or someone else's life. Hasten to me, O oh God. I need you. I need thee every hour, every hour. I need thee. Come quickly and abide. Oh, that's a great line. It's coming out of Psalm 70, I mean, at least in concept. Come quickly 
and abide. If you're not in the habit of prayer, daily, I want you to ask yourself a hard question. Who are you more confident in? Yourself or God? Ask some hard questions. And if you want to talk more about how you can weave prayer into your daily life, if you just want to pray together, we want to be a church that prays. Like we would love to be a church where we come in on Sunday morning and people are gathering and, and you see people praying together because so-and-so was deeply hurt or experienced loss or, or whatever it is. And we just, we see people praying together or it's legal. It's legal to pray together before church, during church, and after church, like in the commons. Uh, we would love to pray and be a praying church. So we want to encourage you to do that and yeah, please have the freedom to pull one of our pastors aside on the way in or on the way out and say, hey, this is heavy on me right now. Well, could we, could we pray right now? Let's pray right now. I want to close with Matthew 6. And let me, let me read this to you. When you pray, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. They love for people to watch them pray. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That just means they've received a really cheap reward of the approval of men. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles who go on and on because they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So pray like this. And then we get the instruction of the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer. I thought it'd be good for us to voice that together today as we close. So we'll say the Lord's Prayer together because so much of what's in the Lord's Prayer we just discovered in Psalm 70. And you're gonna see a link. You're gonna see some, some real biblical unity between Psalm 70 and this uh, and, and, and the Lord's Prayer. So what I wanna invite you to do is pray with me the Lord's Prayer to kind of reinforce everything we've just said. And I'm gonna, let's do it slowly. Let's not just ramble through it. And it's not, we do not want this to be a vain repetition but I do want you to voice it if it's your heart and if you know it. So let's pray, you can bow your head, you can pray with your eyes open, it, it's all legal. Um, let's say the Lord's Prayer together today and ask God to teach us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, say it with me, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We do pray these things in the strong powerful, life-giving name of Christ our Savior. Amen.